0: This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. E-commerce sales continue to grow rapidly in both developed and developing markets. That's putting pressure on traditional retailers to adapt their strategies, expand their offerings, both of which are putting even more pressure on returns and margins. To discuss how e-commerce is impacting the retail landscape, I'm joined by Heath Terry and Matt Fassler of Goldman Sachs Research. Heath, Matt, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks so much.
0: You've recently updated your forecast for e-commerce growth globally, 22% for this year, a good solid number, and highlighted China, India, and South Korea as the countries we expect to see the largest gains. Obviously, the fact that more and more people are entering the middle class, internet connectivity is improving, are both key drivers. What else is at play here, though? And why are these countries that you've spotlighted leading the way?
1: You know, so on a country basis, it really is the developing consumer that you've got, right? Those are relatively early stage countries in terms of their consumers coming online and being able to spend at a level that's more in line or increasingly more in line with the Western world. What's unique about those countries is they're essentially skipping a step. They are going straight to e-commerce without the broader build out of retail and stores and malls and everything that the rest of the world kind of went through. And so as their consumers' spending power improves, a much higher percentage of that is going online versus, say, a country like the U.S. or most of Western Europe, where e-commerce companies have to fight and win away from traditional retailers every dollar that they get. Within that 22%, though, one of the more interesting things that is happening in the developed markets is that you're starting to see signs of acceleration of the growth in those markets on what is a relatively mature level. And that's happening in part because of demographics. You've got consumers that grew up online coming into their prime spending know years. anything else. Yeah. Exactly. And then you've also got traditional retailers that, because of competitive pressures, Are closing stores, shrinking their square footage, reducing their levels of inventory, and pushing consumers towards online, frequently their online sites, but also to some of their competitors in some cases.
0: So let's talk a little bit about traditional retailers. The natural response seems to be, wow, there's a lot of explosive growth online. I'm going to be there, too. Matt, you've written that doesn't really work out so well. Why is that? So the cost of doing
2: business is going up, but that incremental cost isn't necessarily yielding additional growth. So these companies were obviously built as distribution mechanisms to bring products to people, primarily through their stores. So to play online, you need to market online. You also need to develop incremental distribution, distribution centers. You need trucks. You need to get stuff directly to people. All of the, which cost money. And the stores yeah. are still there. Yeah. So what you're essentially doing is you're putting more assets on the ground. Your existing assets are still there. And the key is you're not necessarily growing your customer base. You're taking care of your customers the way they want to be taken care of, which is what you need to do. But that's often dilutive to the business rather than accretive to the business. So
0: let's talk a little bit about the e-commerce first sites, e-commerce brands. Are those same pressures present for e-commerce brands that are moving a little bit into having an actual retail
1: presence? Yeah, you certainly have some of that. You've seen companies test having physical locations. For the most part, though, they're doing it in a different way, somebody that's using guide shops that don't actually sell product in their physical locations, but can be a way for customers to come in, see what fits, see what they like, touch it, feel it, which is obviously important in apparel, and then order online without a lot of the costs that go with having a physical store. You're not having to carry a lot of inventory. You're not having to carry the same amount of square footage or the same amount of labor that you would if you were running a traditional store that was trying to sell apparel.
0: So it's marketing, branding, a little bit of customer interaction, but it doesn't have all the built-in costs of a traditional retail operation. Exactly. So sometimes big retailers say, well, I didn't grow up doing this, so maybe I should find someone who did. M&A becomes an option. Is that a cost-effective option for some of the big retailers that are trying to break into online? I think where it's worked well is when big companies buy tiny
2: companies for their talent, or for their technology. I think if you pay up for a revenue base and for infrastructure, it's not necessarily any better than building it yourself. And oftentimes we've seen large retailers buying uh, e-commerce companies kind of on the downside of their growth cycle. And the large retailers rarely bring those businesses back to their glory days. So they end up essentially catching an asset, hoping and thinking that they're going to find some magic in it, but it doesn't necessarily
0: ignite the base online business. Back in 2014, not so long ago, you and your colleagues identified four key ways that e commerce was squeezing traditional brick and mortar retailers share loss mm-hmm. to disruptive forces, changing consumer preferences, we talked a little bit about, mm-hmm. the dilutive impact of what is called omni channel investment, yeah. and maybe you can explain a little bit of that, and price sure. transparency. So if you flash forward to today, all of these four trends have really reshaped the landscape. What's the challenge that e-commerce poses today? Sure, Jake. I think all these forces have stayed with us, intensified, though perhaps
2: in a bit of a different order than we last saw. So several years ago, when e-commerce really started to impact traditional retail, the first and foremost factor was price transparency. Even if Amazon was small, the fact that it was broadcasting broadly lower prices than you could get at most brick-and-mortar retailers forced these companies to respond to a competitive challenge that they had never confronted before. And you saw prices and margins come down in lots of commoditized businesses. The second threat at that point was so-called omni-channel investment, a retailer's effort to develop the ability to do business both in its stores and through other channels like online and direct distribution. You saw a lot of companies putting money into developing that capability with the hope that it would pay off in profitability over time. The risk of market share and of diminished traffic because of consumers' shopping preferences wasn't as prominent at the time because the base of e-commerce, if you will, at that time was smaller and the cannibalization of brick and mortar retail at that time wasn't that significant. So if you fast forward to today, Amazon has continued to grow at a rapid rate off a much larger base. And in doing so, it's by definition taking more meaningful market share from incumbents. Along with that, even to the extent that the business isn't being done with Amazon, if shopping trips are down, impulse purchases are down. Consumers aren't out there in the stores buying something that they may not need but that they happen to see and like. Price transparency is still a factor on the channel investment, still a factor and still I think dilutive to many retailers today.
0: So For years in e-commerce, the strategy was, let's grow, grow, grow. Profitability, we'll worry about that later. Is that changing at all?
1: It it is. Uh, You're certainly seeing more profitability. I don't know that the strategy has necessarily changed as much that we've just gotten to the point where that strategy is paying off. These companies are all still investing really heavily, but because we're in year 16 as opposed to year five, the investments made in year five are paying off and are big enough to fund the investments that are being made in 16. You look at just the sheer number of dollars that are being invested in e-commerce, they're still investing very heavily, but because they made some of those early investments, you're starting to see margin expansion from those early investments that are helping to fund the new investments and you don't have the same level of losses. What you've got is you've got companies that are being very aggressive, though. They're willing to lose money to start new businesses. They're willing to lose money to take share. They're willing to lose money to pressure their competitors. Amazon missed numbers for most of 2014 so that they could build out a very deep sortation network that has become a tremendous advantage for them when it comes to fulfillment, both this past holiday season and certainly in terms of getting product to people faster matt can correct me if i'm wrong but there aren't a lot of traditional companies that are willing to miss numbers for that long in order to be competitive two three four five years out
0: when online companies want to get aggressive these days about acquiring customers how are they going about it and has it gotten cheaper or more expensive to do that
1: there's a variety of channels that they're using Some of it is just old fashioned direct advertising, marketing, showing up in keyword search results. So some of it happens that way. Where you really see it most effective, though, are the bigger investments in technology and fulfillment. You look at some of the competitors that are trying to catch up to Amazon. Amazon's out there offering $35 free shipping on product that's usually going to arrive to you in 24 hours, maybe 48 hours. The competitive offerings that are out there that you see some companies doing are, we'll do $50 free shipping and we'll get it to you in two days. You're not going to catch up by running slower.
0: And so there is some marketing going on, but the investments, the big investments, are really in improving the customer experience, whatever yep. it takes.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Are there still parts of the population here in the U.S. or around the world that are completely resistant to online commerce?
1: I don't think we see it. I mean, there are certain areas where it's underpenetrated, whether it's demographic, older generations, lower income demographics that don't necessarily have the same level of accessibility to things like credit card payments and mobile devices. But you look at the speed that e-commerce is developing in markets like India. You look at the speed that it's developing in a lot of emerging markets out there. And it's really hard to find some place where e-commerce is not really changing the way that people buy things.
2: It's just a matter of time, I would agree.
0: Yeah. So how are some of these e-commerce companies today going about improving the shopping experience and, and the buying experience for customers?
1: A lot of it is around discovery, and it can be a little hard to, to find your way around or to find the exact product that you're looking for, especially when it's a category that has a lot of third-party sellers on the platform. And so discovery is the biggest challenge, which is why you see them making a lot of investment in guides around certain products. Apparel is a big place that they do that. And so it really is about that investment in technology and your ability to do that better than your competitors that's really about getting merchandising and getting product discovery to a place where consumers find it as friendly as going and browsing a mall used to be.
2: I would add, if I may, personalization. Data is the dream in retailing. Some brick-and-mortar retailers have great data about who's buying what and when they're buying it online retailers have perfect information about who's buying
0: what, when they bought it, what they looked at first. The retailers, those that know when you walk in the store who you are and, and what you're, although that may come. It might. Well, a scary moment, but yes, it might.
2: And so Amazon and others, including the brick and mortar retailers who get it, are able to use that insight and tailor your online experience and use your history
0: to guide you, if you will, towards the purchase opportunity. So let's talk a little bit about price transparency, which we've referenced. But if you think about the industries where price transparency has been around for a while, books, electronics, media, margins, as we talked about, were compressed, very little room for profitability in some of those sectors these days. Those are the places with the greatest e-commerce penetration. What does that mean for the rest of the industries like fashion and apparel that are beginning to experience that now?
2: We've certainly seen the wave move from some of that low-hanging fruit to categories that I think were previously perceived as more protected, some of which are seeing a very rapid acceleration in the pace of penetration. Apparel is actually now the largest e-commerce category online by dollars, not in terms of penetration but in terms of dollar size of the business. The one that'll be really interesting to watch is food, particularly perishable food, given that logistically it's very complicated. But these are huge, fertile markets. Apparel is a very profitable business if you do it right. Food is an enormous market, and if you can get food right, then you're basically interacting with the customer with very high frequency, which
0: sort of drives the size of the basket more broadly. So some of the best position names in e-commerce benefited from a very receptive venture capital community in the early stages, but we've seen some slowdown in VC investment in this space the last couple of years. Have VC firms changed their outlook and how they're evaluating the opportunities here?
1: I think they have. I think, you know, we saw 2014, there was about a 5% decline in e-commerce investment by venture, much bigger decline, close to 50% in 2015. And that's largely a reaction to the lack of success that a lot of companies had in trying to compete in the category you know we saw a couple of different waves of new ways of doing e-commerce that just didn't catch on the way they were expecting it to things like flash sales that had their moment during the 2008-2011 sort of recessionary period those companies did extremely well but weren't able to carry it into but that model the didn't become recovery. baked
0: into the way people shop every
1: day it didn't certainly not the way that they expected it to outside of you know maybe a smaller segment of the uh, of the audience And so i think a lot of traditional e-commerce venture investors are kind of taking a step back here waiting to see what is going to work in this environment or where they've already made investments because there are still a lot of private companies out there in e-commerce that are trying to get real traction before they go into that next cycle or that next wave of heavy venture investing
0: so when we think about the long-term trajectory of e-commerce Do you expect continued growth at these very high rates that we're seeing today? And will this just become the dominant way most people shop?
1: I think we do see this very high level of growth for a long time because you do have those two forces of consumers moving more of their expenditures online and traditional retail dealing with the relatively high fixed cost nature of the store-based model and forcing more customers online because of that. And so in the same way that we've started to see e-commerce in the U.S. accelerate here just even in the last few months because of some of those things, we think that's very sustainable. I mean, we're still at relatively low levels of penetration. Depending upon how you define the market, we're somewhere between sort of high single digits, maybe even low teens in terms of where penetration stands right now. Overall. 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 And there's no reason to think that that number's not a 3 to 4x multiple of that It'll come closer
0: resembling the proportion of my household, which is closer Mm
1: -hmm. to 90-10. Yes, exactly.
0: Your thoughts on that, Matt?
1: It'll take a little while to get
2: that far. If it does, you're certainly going to see a reshaping of the options that are available to consumers. The network effect of retailers taking out capacity will impact the ability of other retailers to do business. And to Heath's point, the options are going to continue to diminish. And I think that in and of itself will eat into the market opportunity
0: for store-based retailers. All right. Thank you, guys. Fascinating discussion. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening.
3: This podcast was recorded on June 30th, 2016. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording.